Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 64, Bonus Episode, We Shall Get In. Well, about a year ago, some wonderful folks at Notre Dame University met Matt, and they were so impressed with him and with the podcast, they invited him to come and speak at their Edith Stein conference. Edith Stein, that wonderful 20th century Saint Benedicta. Well, uh, fortunately for me, unfortunately for them, Matt was unavailable that weekend, but I was grateful to step in and gave a talk called We Shall Get In, C.S. Lewis and the Hope of Heaven. The organizers were really interested in the last battle, in weight of glory, and especially during Easter season with heaven. And of course, there's only one way, uh, apart from the Lord's return, to get to heaven, and that's through the doorway of death. So we talked about that for about 45 minutes, and they sent us the audio for this talk. So I'm grateful to offer this to you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth talk of the second day of the Edith Stein Project Conference. Today, we are really honored and delighted to have with us Andrew Lazo, an internationally known speaker and writer specializing um, on C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. Andrew earned his master's in modern British literature from Rice University and taught English and C.S. Lewis for 10 years at St. Thomas and Houston Christian High Schools in Houston. He is currently a candidate for Holy Orders, preparing for the Episcopal Priesthood at Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. He is also pursuing his doctorate in Romantic Theology at Northwind Seminary, where he serves as a distinguished lecturer. Andrew is currently co-host of the C.S. Lewis podcast, uh, Pints with Jack, and is working on an in-depth study of C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. We are so excited to have Andrew speak to us today on We Shall Get In, C.S. Lewis and the Hope of Heaven. Just a quick reminder, if you have any questions for Andrew after his talk, please put them in the Q&A box. I will send a reminder in the middle of his talk as well. Um, and so, yeah, now, Andrew, take it away. Well, thank you and welcome, everybody. I'm so, so glad to see you all. Um, I can't really see you, uh, but uh, I'm glad to be here with you. And uh, it's going to be a joy to talk with you just a little bit. Uh, when we were discussing what to talk about, um, we landed on two of my very favorite works of Lewis's, The Weight of Glory and The Last Battle. And so we'll read some from, from there and we'll talk about, uh, talk about the hope of heaven, especially in the Easter season that we're in. And I want to leave plenty of time for questions. And so uh, start thinking of uh, anything that you want to know about this, uh, the subject, the talk, or anything about Lewis um, altogether. So uh, let's, uh, let's begin. And thank you for joining us. We shall get in C.S. Lewis and the hope of heaven. In 1955, right as he was finishing writing the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis was approached by an American theologian, Carl F.H. Henry, asking Lewis, apparently, to write some theological articles, perhaps apologetics, for Christianity today. Lewis refused, and his reasons why are deeply intriguing, especially given the topic that we're talking about today. Here's what he said. We still have his letter. Dear Dr. Henry, I wish your project heartily well, but I can't write you articles. My thought and talent, such as they are, 
now flow in different, though I think not less Christian channels. And I do not think I am at all likely to write more directly theological pieces. If I am now good for anything, it is for catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. I have done what I could in the way of frontal attacks, but I now feel quite sure those days are over. So that's what he had to say to, uh, to Carl F.H. Henry. Now, I wanna point out a couple of things um, about this and kind of let you know why this is the place where I started. And I'm gonna see if I can't pull my talk up right in front of my eyes so I'm not always looking down. Let's pretend that I'm, uh, that I'm speaking straight to you. And maybe God willing in the future, we'll be able to, uh, to do this together in person. Great, here we go. Thanks for your patience. Here we are. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about what Lewis said to Dr. Henry. Remember, he said, I'm not at all likely to write any directly theological pieces. And he underlines the, the word directly in his actual letter. If I'm good for anything, it's catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. I've done what I could in the way of frontal attacks. This is very telling. First of all, in story, Lewis is writing theology. He's just writing not a frontal attack, but a rearguard attack and not direct theology like he did in the 1940s with miracles and mere Christianity and the problem of pain. He's writing indirect theology. That's what he says to Dr. Uh, to Dr. Henry as he's in the year that he finishes up the last battle and till we have faces his best fictional work. And secondly, the way that he's writing this rear guard indirect the indirectly theological attack is he's doing it by fairy tales and he's doing it so that he can catch the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. Let me mention that I think that part of the reason I think this is important is that's exactly how Jesus taught stories, right? Um, it said that it says in the gospels that he did not open his mouth without telling a parable so that seeing they did not see and hearing they would not hear. Lewis is following Jesus's model of catching readers unawares through fiction and symbol. So why does it matter? Good question. Well, I've been asked to talk to you today about the hope of heaven. I've been asked to speak to you about the resurrection. So in doing so, I'm going to use Lewis's own method to do so. I hope you're ready. Let me start my talk about the hope of the resurrection by telling you with seriousness and certainty some good news and some bad news. And it's the same news. You and I are going to die. It's coming for all of us. The grave has a 100% success rate. If we hope to rise to the resurrection, make no mistake, the only way to experience resurrection and get to heaven is to pass through the dreadful door of death. So swallow hard and let's see what the Chronicles of Narnia have to say about that fearful door. Let's look at the last battle. Now, I'm going to give you lots of spoiler alerts, and uh, if you haven't read all of the Chronicles of Narnia, well, that's on you. 
And so I hope I won't spoil it, but, in, but if you haven't gotten the chance to read them yet, I hope it just heightens your anticipation of what you'll find once you get there. So let me give you some back, background to these seven books. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, comes first, even though they're numbered differently. Uh, the Magician's Nephew is kind of a, uh, a prequel story set in the days of, um, uh, of uh, the late, late 1800s. The last book of the series is The Last Battle. And for a while, Lewis called it Night Fall, Falls on Narnia. In it, we have all the end of the, uh, of the adventures in Narnia. And we have Lewis's eschatological vision, his vision of the end times and what they may look like. And it's a terrible scene. In fact, The Last Battle, I think, is one of the most modern things that Lewis wrote because it reminds me of our age. And it's like the Irish poet William Butler Yeats said, turning and turning in the widening gyre, um, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And that's what's happening in the modern world. That's certainly what's happening in the contemporary world. And that's what's happening when we come to the, the, the last days of the last king of Narnia. His name is King Tyrion. And he's as good as he can be, but boy, the mighty have fallen. Tyrion has even turned cruel. At one point, he kills an unarmed man and is greatly ashamed of that. Not only has he uh, adopted some inadvertent cruelty, the Narnians are enslaved. The horses, talking horses, are made to just pull carts uh, by the Calermines. Living trees with spirits are dying and being chopped down for lumber. False prophets have converted Aslan, Aslan and the horrible bird demon Tash, who's the god of the Calermines, into some kind of conflated Tashlin. People are perpetuating lies and half-truths in Ashland's name. It's like the scripture says, they have the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They know some things that are still true about Ashland, but they only know a piece of it. And so the only thing that keeps going around is the saying that Ashland is not a tame lion. Well, Ashland is not a tame lion, but they forget the second half of that, that Ashland is good. And if we appropriate just part of God's attributes and forget the fullness of him, especially his loving kindness, we are on our way to some deep danger. And that's where we find Narnia. Nevertheless, there is some hope. There still are loyal Narnians, human and animal alike. And the children appear, summoned from earth and summoned out of, out of the past. But the situation that Narnia finds itself in, in is frankly cause for despair. The faithful are too few and they are too poorly informed. By the way, if ever there was a reason to pay attention in theology class, the last battle is it. We have to remember all of the attributes of our savior. And that's what's going wrong in, in Narnia. So they're coming to this, this battle. There's a, a stable. And they have been trotting out this donkey covered in a lion's skin to speak as if he were Aslan. There's this foolish ape called Shift 
and he leads the donkey dressed up as Asin. The donkey's name is Puzzle. Leads him out, leans in, and then proclaims what he thinks or what he what he wants Aslan to say. And mostly, the ape says that Aslan wants you to bring me more nuts and more fruits and bananas. It's a terrible scene. But the Narnians who don't know Aslan well enough because he's been gone so long, the Narnians don't know any better. And so they wail and they follow him because they have fear of Aslan and they're willing to be afraid of him, which is a good thing, but they've also, but they've lost the love of God. And so it's a terrible situation. In the meantime, Shift the ape is in league with the Calermines. These are uh, these are, are men from the uh, the uh, southern country who have long wanted to dominate Narnia for its freedom and plunder it for its riches, and so they see in this kind of foolish ape a chance to invade Narnia and to take over and to kill all the talking animals or enslave them all. And so that's what's going on. And they have invaded into Narnia, and by the time the children come, it is almost too late. In fact, there's this stable where Aslan uh, stays and they trot him out late at night so that nobody can really see what's going on. And they say things in his name and everybody wails. Meanwhile, the Calamines are mechanistically, you know, kind of making plans for all, their, all of their evil deeds. And so the children come and Tyrion comes and they try to make a last stand and they're ready to fight, but they're far outnumbered. And so the cruel soldiers are pressing them up against the back of the door of the stable. Now they say that Tashlin is inside. Well, at first Tashlin is just this, you know, this donkey dressed up, but something actually starts happening. And at one point, um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the, the evil characters, the cat, goes in to prove that, uh, you know, that, that they will meet, uh, meet Tashlin. And the cat actually meets Tash, the demonic bird-faced god of the Calermines. It's a demon. And the cat comes face to face with it and goes shooting out of the stable. So everybody is in terror. The Narnians are in terror and they fear that door. So... Um, this is what, uh, this is what the, uh, the Narnians say as they're being pressed back to the door and the, the armies are pressing them forward. Um, they say, don't you see their very plan is to force us into the stable. The further we are from its deadly door, the better. The king is right, said Farsight the eagle. Away from this accursed stable and whatever goblin lives inside it at all costs. Yes, do let's, said Eustace. I'm coming to hate the very sight of it. They have reason to fear. Because like G.K. Chesterton said, you should beware when you call on the gods. They have been playing about with the gods, Tash and Aslan and Tashlin. They don't believe in gods, but they call on the gods and the gods arrive. And what is to happen to us if we call on gods that we don't believe in and they actually show up, especially if they are unpleasant gods. There certainly is reason to fear. The cat goes in, a conspirator, but loses his ability to speak. He stops being a talking beast of Narnia and nobody sees him again. They are shepherding them towards this door behind which a demon uh, exists and all is lost. And so how do the last heroes of Narnia face this terrible fate? Let's pick up the story. Lewis writes, 
I feel in my bones, said Poggin the dwarf, that we shall all one by one pass through that dark door before morning. I can think of a hundred deaths I would rather have died. It is a indeed a grim door, said King Tyrion. It is more like a mouth. Oh, can't we do anything to stop it, said Jill in a shaken voice. Nay, fair friend, said Jewel the unicorn, nosing her gently. It may be for us the door to Aslan's country, and we shall sup at his table tonight. Did you see the profound theological thing that happened? This is echoes of all the scriptures. Remember what Joseph said? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Here is a, and here is Jewel the unicorn almost voicing what, um, what the thief on the cross said. Today you, you shall be with me in paradise, says Jesus to the thief right? They fear this door. They know they're facing something terrible, but Jewel in this beautiful sign of insight and uh, insight and faith says it may be for us the door into Aslan's country and we shall sup at his table tonight. You know, in the Episcopal funeral service, there's a phrase that always heartens me. We say, as we are burying our beloved, Yet even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The scriptures say that blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones, right? There is something such as the precious death. For those evil ones in Narnia, death is the worst thing, or to fear the demons. But Jewel remembers that we are in Aslan's hand. And he knows that at the other side of the door, there will be a great feast for us. And so, one by one, they make their way into that stable door. But what they find in there, like a stable in our own world so long ago, is bigger inside than it was outside. They also find all of the friends of Narnia. All of the characters from, from our world who have made their way, all of the kings and queens. King Edmund the Just is there. And so when Jill gets in there and Eustace, they find all of these kings and queens, these friends of Narnia. And they're like, how did you get here? And this is how King Edmund describes it. He says, we were riding on a train and then there was a frightful roar and something hit me with a bang, but it didn't hurt. And I felt not so much scared as, as well, excited. Actually, they're in a train station waiting for a train to come and they get struck by a train, the very train carrying their mother and father and they die. But that's how Edmund described it. A frightful roar, something that hit me with a bang, but it didn't hurt. And then I'm not scared, but excited. And the next thing you know, they're in Aslan's country and there's leisure and there's fruit from the trees that they can hardly believe is theirs to eat. There's complete freedom from every pain they ever had. And they're surrounded by nearly everyone they love. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory. The Lord Diggory is the old professor from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
it's in its inside is bigger than its outside yes said queen lucy and queen lucy is the one who always sees things best and first yes said queen lucy in our world too a stable once had something inside it that was that was bigger than our whole world i don't know about you but for my money i'll take that indirect theology of fiction and symbol to catch me unawares any day so where does that leave us trapped on this side of the stable door of death well Lewis has some good news for us too. And for that, let's turn to one of his most compelling works and one of the best sermons ever preached in the 20th century and find there the heart of this talk. It's a sermon called The Weight of Glory and I recommend it to your reading many times heartily. Here's what Lewis says about this same door. At, the, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Ah, the characteristic then of this mortal life, and remember that mortal means bound to die. The characteristic of the life on this side of the stable door is one that has flashes of beauty and broad vistas of unfulfillment. Every bit of beauty in story and in song and in nature and in every love ring with an ache of emptiness especially because late or soon everything must journey through that door of death. But still we long, we ache, and we have this sense that this is not our home, that there is something more for us. At the end of the four loves, C.S. Lewis says that that all of our experience in some ways maybe just describes the shape where our love of God ought to be. And if we cannot practice the presence of God, it is something to practice the absence of God, but it is not enough. Still we long. Here's what Lewis says in Weight of Glory. In speaking of this longing, of this desire for our own far off country, I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret that hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Oh, 
that world, that beauty that we long to get into, but we just cannot on this side of the door. Lewis goes on. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but they are mistaken. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Oh, do you feel that? Do you know that longing? Do you know the need to be broken out of the false spell of enchantment that has been laid on us by everything the world has to say? Do you look at your newsfeed and know that there's something more, that this world is not our home and can never be enough? Lewis goes on. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. Ah, I read that to you. Almost our whole education is, is directed in silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found here on this earth. But the experience of anybody honest and true, and certainly anybody walking in the way of the gospel, will tell you that this world is not our home. That with Father Abraham, we are strangers in a strange land that we long for another world. We are looking for a city of true foundations. And that city is not here. The best this world has to offer is simply a signpost to sharpen our longing to get through that door and into heaven. Oh, but that door, that doorway of death. So what is the key to that door? How do we get in? What good is anything on earth in the hope of heaven? Well, let's go back to Narnia for the very end, the very last scene at that last door. And let us turn to our patron, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, for a final word. Here's what the last battle says. As Narnia falls and as people come rushing, all the animals come rushing into the door, into the door to Aslan's country, into the door to heaven where Aslan stands there. The creatures of Narnia came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer to the standing stars. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things, excuse me, happened to each of them. They all looked straight in Aslan's face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, their expre the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. 
except that on the faces of the talking beasts, the fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you have heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him even though some of them were very frightened at the same time. And all these came in at the door, in on Ashland's right. Did you see what just happened there? Both sets of animals came to Aslan at the final door out of Narnia and into heaven as Narnia was being destroyed. And they looked him in the face. Both of them had fear. And that's great news, especially as we in this world look at the fearful door of death, especially because it's the only path towards the resurrection. We all have fear as we face this final judgment, this final door, what, what St. Francis called brother death. But some had hatred and some had love. Now, let me be careful to define hatred the way that Lewis defines it. Lewis sets up not love and hate as opposites, but the opposite of love, Lewis says, is pride. And the opposite of selfishness is not unselfishness, but love. He says that at the opening pages of Weight of Glory. Love, Lewis, is, Lewis describes in a talk in 1958, is to go out of ourselves towards another there are two moves, away from me and towards you. That is Lewis's definition of love. Fundamentally, there are two choices. I will either choose love or I will choose myself. If you want a case study in this, just reread The Great Divorce. People will either choose themselves or they will choose outside of themselves, love, heaven, everything else. All of these animals who were facing Aslan with fear were facing them with, with fear based on their own selfishness. But those who even in spite of their fear look at him with love, look at him towards him and forget about themselves, these are the ones that enter into his joy and enter into his rest. Earlier, we see these dwarfs who go into the stable and it's beautiful there and there's wonderful food and drink and there's fellowship and beautiful smells and flowers and everything. But the dwarves sit in a circle facing themselves because the dwarves are for the dwarves. And it says of them, Lewis pronounces this, their fatal, uh, their fatal senses, uh, sentence, they will not be taken in. If they will not be taken in, there's nothing Aslan can do for them. They have willingly blinded themselves. One of the Narnians holds flowers under the nose. He thinks that it's hay covered in dung. They try to give them marvelous food. They think that it's dirt and brackish water. The dwarves are for themselves. The dwarves have turned into themselves. They've become like screw tape and wormwood who would just consume them, each other. 
The only way out of the hell of self is through the giving away of the death of self and the love of the other. Here's what our patron says. St. Benedictus says, the motive, principle, and end of the religious life is to make an absolute gift of self to God in a self-forgetting love to end one's own life in order to make room for God's life. She and Lewis would have agreed perfectly. We have to say no to my life. And once I die to my own life and say yes to the life that God will live in me, that's very good news. And the very opposite of a world that tells you YOLO, you will only live once. No, the scripture says it is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. Jesus said, unless we die to ourselves daily and take up our cross, we can never see the kingdom of heaven. This self-forgetting love that Edith Stein spoke of. So here then, in Lewis's sermon and in Lewis's story, is the great story of Easter. Lewis says at the end of Weight of Glory that the cross comes before the crown and the door of death waits, awaits us all. But do not fear, or do not fear much, or do not fear at least any more than you can help but fear. For the hope of heaven is Aslan himself, Jesus, our great high priest, and he has gone through that great door of death on Good Friday. And when our time comes to open and go through that very door, he will meet us there with a look of love and mercy for all that we have gone through, and he shall take us home. For of course, it is Christ died for our sins, raised for our re redemption, the very resurrection who is our hope of heaven. And by that death and by that resurrection, that grace and that love, by those things someday, God willing, we shall get in. That, my friends, is the hope of heaven. And that is brother death, the doorway we must all go through. But that, as we find on the last page of the last battle, is just the first page of the first chapter of the great story that begins and never ends. And each chapter is better than the one before. We shall get in. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you so Thank you so much, Andrew. That was really excellent. Um, we have a few questions just from this room that I'm gonna share with you now. Um, and just a reminder, anyone on Zoom, you can put your questions in the Q&A box. Um, so one question is, um, Knowing that we are always destined for um, Aslan's country um, and that this is not our ultimate home, how should we then live our lives in this present age? Um, that, so, uh, a similar concept is someone brought up Memento Mori and how that relates and how C.S. Lewis would kind of talk about that and respond to that. So yeah, that's the first question. 
Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly, I think momentum mori is exactly it. I think that we should live as if, um, and our world doesn't want us to think about death. We hide death away. We sanitize it. We, we keep it from our vision. We don't talk about it. But death, as, as St. Francis said, is our brother and it's coming for us, right? And St. Paul says, outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And that's coming and that's happening. And so how should we then live? We should live as if we are eternal beings and that our four score years and 10, you know, is just the beginning. Screwtape Letters talks about this. If you indulge in a little sin, it doesn't grow very large over 80 years of life. But if we are eternal creatures, right, then it goes on for a very long time. And Lewis says in The Way to Glory, we are eternal. We will outlive, right, all of the, we'll outlive civilizations and buildings and continents. They are mortal. And their life to us is the life of the gnat. If we then are immortal people, how should we love? And let me be very meddly with you in terms of this question about how we should live. I bet you that most of you have somebody who offended you at some point this week or last. Have you cherished that? Have you forgiven that? Have you gone soft-hearted towards that person who offended you? How well have you spoken the love for those that you love? And how well have you spoken love for your enemies? How are we doing in turning our other cheeks? If we are eternal creatures, and if the key to the door of death is love, both God's love for us and our love for him and our love for our neighbors, how are we doing at softening our hearts instead of hardening our hearts. Look, I got all the news apps and the streams and all the rest, and I'm looking around at this country and I'm finding anything but love. We have sanctioned hatred in our political processes and everywhere else. It's us and them. But I think what Lewis calls us to, I think what Sister Benedict, St. Benedicta calls us to, I think that what God calls us to is the softening of heart in light of the fact that we will die and so will they. Can you imagine if you speak a harsh word and then you never see the person again and they die? And the last thing they heard from you was a word of harshness. Tomorrow is Sunday. Tonight is Saturday Mass. And our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are preparing your gift at the altar and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift and go make it right. I love that you have the sacrament of reconciliation. Be reconciled to one another in the booth and out of it. Who do you need to soften your heart to? Who do you need to love better than you do right now? I have my own list and it's a long and a hard one, but I think that's how we should live. Yes, that's, that's a great answer. And I think this next question really ties well with that. So someone um, was asking how much of this, of how we live, of getting in um, is our own choice in loving others and how much of it just comes from God's grace. Um, this is especially interesting to me as I am reading Augustine right now, and he talks a lot about justification through grace and not through how our free will is inclined towards evil. 
Um, and so what would C.S. Lewis say to that? Um, how, yeah, how much of it is God's mercy to us and how much do we have control over this? It's a great old debate, and it's one that we'll never really understand the paradox of it until we get to heaven. And I think St. Paul leaves it balanced on the edge of a knife. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. I think that we should do all the good that we can using our will as best we can, but when we look back on those things, when we get to heaven, we will see that it was God who was working with us, in us, even in those times where it feels that God is very distant. C.S. Lewis said, uh, Lewis asked, is it easy to love God? And, Jack, uh, and Lewis said, it is for those who do it, right? It's a progression and it's a choice. And we have to continue making that choice day after day. Do we make that choice by God's grace? Absolutely. But is it my will who says yes to God? Ultimately, I think it is. In the great divorce, he says, in the end, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. So maybe the only active will that I can have is to turn my will over to the will of God. But I don't know about you, but that choice to turn my will over doesn't stay chosen all day, any day. I have to continue to choose that again and again and again. So I think that once we get to heaven, we'll see that it was all God, even though once, you know, even though on this side, it seems like it's all of our own choice. A priest friend of mine says, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but you know what else is paved with good intentions? The road to heaven. So we have to follow those intentions and keep making those choices, not because our salvation depends on us, but because we want to agree with the grace that gives us the strength to walk. Thank you. Yeah, that's really excellent. Um, another question that has come in is, you seem to be talking about the agape type of love. Um, what is the role of the other types of love, philia, eros, and especially with eros, um, how do we keep that ordered? towards self-gift. Okay, well, I only have another six or seven hours, and I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to answer all of that. Um, what I would do in shorthand is recommend to you C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, where he talks about these. Um, and what you're talking about is the heart of everything that I'm working on, and there's certainly not enough time to go deeply enough into it. But Here's what Lewis says in The Four Loves, and I think it's a principle that will apply and, and answer as far as I can your question. He quotes Denis de Rougemont, who says, love ceases to be a demon when he ceases to be a god. And Lewis corrects this false statement. He says, some people say that when the real, gods, when the real god comes, the half gods go. Lewis says, no, when the real God comes, the half gods are now allowed to take their proper place. So yes, there are the three natural loves, affection, storgy, familial love, eros, romantic love, sexual love, and philia, friendship love. And then there's agape or agape, the divine love. It's the love that God has for us. It's the love of choice. What happens is, and this is a wonderful essay by Lewis that I recommend highly to you all. It's an essay called First and Second Things. When we place second things in the place of first things, they will turn sour and get corrupt. 
if I look to politics to bring about the righteousness of God, I've got a second thing in the place of a first thing, right? So Eros is a wonderful love, but as we look around, we see it disordered all over the place. Look at all of the kinds of, of perversions of sexuality are there. And so what Eros must do is bow the knee to agape, to self, selfless love, to God-centered love. And what happens is when, um, when we use Eros with unconditional love, if we allow the love of God to invade our Eros, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our family relationships, that's when they work out well. If we give them their head and let them become the main God, the main love, they will turn demonic and grow selfish. So I think that what happens is work agape and eros together. And always the decision is, how can I serve the other and not serve myself, right? So it's always the move from selfishness towards the other. And that's, to me, how I try and, and, and run those three natural loves in light of God's love. That's really great. And yeah, definitely reading for loves. That is just so good. And everyone should do that. Um, the final question for you is, it was mentioned that you are doing an in-depth study of Till We Have Faces. And briefly, um, if that's possible, how, what does that work say about this entire topic, especially for someone who hasn't read Till We Have Faces yet? What would you say that work is saying? That's another six hours. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, on my Facebook page, um, Mr. Andrew Lazo, um, I think it's Mr. No, I think it's Andrew Lazo author. Um, on my professional Facebook page during the pandemic last year, every Saturday, I went through every single chapter of the book. And so I took a chapter at a time and went through it. And those are available free online. Um, my website, mythoflove.net, has got some links to some talks. And so um, it's hard to unpack till we have faces in just a few moments. But it's talking about this very thing. At the very first line of the book is, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband, no friend, no child, nor hardly even a friend through whom they can hurt me. And if you read carefully, you will find the four loves. I have no husband, Eros, no child, Phil, uh, Storgi, nor hardly even a friend, Philia, through whom the gods can hurt me, Agape. So this is a woman who is railing against the gods because she is so unloved until she finds out that the gods have actually been loving her, but she has been so full of herself. She has thwarted and twisted and perverted all of those loves for everybody in her life. And so um, this, and this, and Lewis called this far and away my best book. And he'd said that late in his life after he had written almost all of his books. Now he was either right or he was wrong or he was exaggerating. I don't think he was wrong and I don't think he was exaggerating. And you'll find in there all of those struggles. And you can very clearly hear the dwarves who will not be taken in are Orwal, the main character who herself would not be taken in. But fortunately, at the very end of the book, love, well, I'll let you read it yourself. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is really excellent. Just for everyone on Zoom right now, this talk is recorded and you will be able to access it. We are very excited to finish up this conference with you all. Thank you for everyone who's come and thank you again for Andrew.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. Please join us again on Pints with Jack next time when we will all be going further up and further in.